This is the CGN Mission and Methods Podcast. This episode was recorded remotely in Portland, Oregon and the CGN studio in Costa Mesa, California in April of 2019. Welcome to the CGN Mission and Methods Podcast, the official podcast of the Calvary Global Network. I'm Kellen Criswell, and I'm your host for this episode. Our guest today is Dr. Randy Roberts. Randy is president and professor of spiritual life development at Western Seminary. He has a doctorate in ministry uh, in Christian spirituality and renewal from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and he's a member of Saving Grace Church in Portland, Oregon. Today's topic, we're going to be getting into the subject of biblical and practical spiritual formation. So, Randy, with that, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kellen. Always good to be with you. Yeah, it's, it's great to have you. And, and, you know, full disclosure for you who are listening, this is another one of my professors from uh, my time at Western Seminary. But there, there's not too much bias going on here. But, uh, <laughs> but Randy, I, I was uh, personally... Um, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program to talk about this subject is because of the course that I was able to take with you uh, on this topic. And it was uh, deeply helpful to me, both from understanding uh, the, the concept of spiritual formation intellectually and biblically, and then thinking through, uh, I guess, more deeply um, some things in my own life that uh, could contribute to a better experience of spiritual formation uh, in my relationship to the Lord. So thanks a ton for being here. Really appreciate it. Oh. Well, thank you for taking it so seriously. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So off the top here, uh, I thought it might be good to talk a little bit about the draw for you in thinking, writing, reflecting on this category of spiritual formation. I know that your dissertation and research for your D-Men was focused in in related areas to the the broad category of spiritual formation and like I mentioned in the in the introduction here you teach courses on the subject so how did the spiritual formation uh, category become such a draw to you it was a combination of factors Kellen first of all it was a study of church history that recognized for evangelicals at their best they took their own walk with God very seriously mm-hmm. and it was that spiritual vitality that contributed disproportionately to their effectiveness in mission. Mm-hmm. But I noticed in contemporary seminary training, it tended to sometimes get short shrift. Mm-hmm. People would think if you're just part of a church or if you just go to chapel, it takes care of itself. And there wasn't much academic attention being given to the dynamics of spiritual formation in many seminary curricula. Uh, in one school I'm aware of, a four-year program, it was only a couple of weeks in the entire sequence, and even that was really academic in orientation, defining terms like sanctification and the like. So I observed that many pastors, when they got into trouble, it wasn't because of theological heresy or forgetting their Greek paradigms. Yeah. It was more in the area of impulse control, uh, emotional intelligence, relationships, the kinds of things that dovetail into the world of Christian spirituality. Mm-hmm. So as I was already involved with Western on the administrative staff at that time, I thought that would be a good area for me to specialize in, both for my own benefit and for the students who attended Western. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and such such a great thing to point out and discuss, really, uh, because I, I would agree with you. My observations, um, when you as I consider examples where you see uh, pastors, ministry leaders experience some kind of crisis and crash, 
it is this situation a lot, isn't it? Where, I mean, I guess there's a bit of a phenomenon, even in Calvary Chapel, we've had several unfortunate examples of this at really high levels in the past few years, where you have leaders who, uh, from the external standpoint, they are being used very powerfully by God. You know, it, at least that's the appearance. There are people uh, coming to the Lord through their preaching and, and God is using their their preaching and their ministry in various ways uh, in positive ways in the spiritual formation of others and so you think well everything must be good and grand uh, but then there's some big scandal or some kind of blowout that occurs and and so you have this this dynamic where it's possible for god to be using someone powerfully and yet this area of spiritual formation to be somewhat weak and lacking or compromised at a at a high enough or in key enough levels and areas uh, where uh, there's there's a lot of unhealth that's going on um, is that is that kind of part of what you're getting at exactly and i think you see that phenomena in the corinthian epistles where you see the gifts functioning apart from the graces right and paul's recognition is that sooner or later that deficit in graces or the christian virtues will catch up with you mm-hmm. and i think of the quote of the english puritan john owen who said that many people's sin when they're in ministry leadership will more than undo the fruit that was produced before that sin was discovered mm-hmm. so you're right about this being a very significant and sobering topic yeah yeah. Part of what I think that we're saying here and what this illustrates is that this is far more than just an area of kind of academic nerdery. <laughs> this is a, there, are, there are very deep and important implications, both for the longevity of, of a ministry, but, but even perhaps more important, uh, the, the believer's relationship to God and, and, and their honor of the Lord, uh, both in public and in private and, and all of that. Yeah. Exactly. So I think it'd be good at this point before we get too further, too far down the road here to talk a little bit about definitions and some, uh, some biblical and theological roots here. So kind of a two part question for one, how would you define spiritual formation? And then secondly, what, what would you say is the place of spiritual formation in the mission of God? The simplest definition, spiritual formation is the process by which the Holy Spirit forms us into Christ-likeness mm. and therefore becomes a practical synonym for the notion of sanctification. Mm-hmm. What is a little bit more controversial and complicated today is that some hear the term spiritual formation and see it as a synonym for a particular model of that formation, namely okay. the contemplative prayer movement. Gotcha. In fact, just to try to avoid that, we've actually shifted our vocabulary more into biblical spirituality or Christian spirituality. Gotcha. Some people heard that term and think, oh, you're mystics, mm-hmm, <laughs> as mm-hmm. opposed to you're people who are actively trying to learn how to cooperate optimally with the Holy Spirit in that process that Paul talks about when he says, I labor until Christ is formed in you. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's the most biblical definition of spiritual formation, and we want to preserve it uh, Mm -hmm. as far as not being intimidated to use the term, but at least to be careful in how we understand the term. Mm -hmm. The second part of your question, how it's related to the mission of God, I think God himself has given a scripture with a twofold purpose, one to call us back into a reconciled relationship of walking together that was ruined by sin through the gospel message. And second, to equip us to co-labor with him in the outworking of the proclamation of that gospel message worldwide. Mm -hmm. And the two go hand in hand because it's only people who are credibly being transformed by the gospel who come across with the integrity to be able to influence other people to take that gospel message seriously if they haven't yet embraced it. 
Paul talks about to Timothy, this is adorning the doctrine of God our Savior, making it beautiful. As mm. people are seeing, we're not just all talk, but also a walk that hopefully has its own amount of appeal and attractiveness to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And so, so if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like under this category of spiritual formation, partly we're talking about this this sovereign, gracious work of God, where by the Holy Spirit, uh, He is He's making us anew, and He's uh, restoring the image of God in in us, and and uh, at least the the aspects of where our the effects of sin has corrupted uh, uh, our nature and all of that, and and so with the the i guess the clearest picture of the goal of spiritual formation becoming more christ-like as mm-hmm. as you're mentioning but that so that's kind of the the god uh sovereignty um process side of this but mm-hmm. there's another part of this discussion it sounds like which is what is our understanding of of the framework in which humans pursue the ends that God is ten, intending to create in, with, within that process. Is that right? I think so. And there you're talking, even you mentioned of the image of God, the Imago Dei, yeah. that has been besmirched, blemished, but not totally lost, but yes. needs to be progressively renewed. Mm-hmm. That's one aspect of the power of God for salvation, the undoing of all of the disastrous effects of sin, progressively mm-hmm. in this life through sanctification, and then ultimately through a glorification in the life to come. Right. And then a second piece of, I guess, what is our part in this and how do we seek to uh, to be involved in the cultivation of Christ-likeness in this work that God is doing in our lives? Right. And I think Philippians 2 gives you a nice insight there. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, mm-hmm. which suggests to me, if I'm reading that accurately, God takes the initiative. Mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. prompts me to want to do the right thing and gives me the ability to do the right thing. But that does not happen apart from my consent or cooperation with the transforming work of his spirit. Yeah. So there we have a genuine biblical synergy working together. Mm-hmm. Neither party does it by themselves. We could not do it by ourselves. God chooses not to do it by himself, but it takes mm-hmm. the two of us working together towards a common goal. Yeah. 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 And that's great. And it isn't this, I mean, this is obviously not, we're not intending to dive into the whole relationship between sovereignty and responsibility, but it is one of those areas of our faith where those dynamics come into play. And, and, but I, I could, I, I think if I'm understanding you correctly, I couldn't agree more. You know, my, my sense is that uh, even with, whether it's spiritual formation or people coming uh, to faith and repentance in the gospel and in the person of Christ, there's this command of God about what we need to do. But even in the doing, it is always fueled and enabled and empowered by God and the grace of God and the spirit of God uh, to be able to do the things that we are commanded. Exactly. And I think theologians will use the term indicative and imperative to describe that relationship. Indicative is what God has done for us. Imperative is what God asks of us in light of what he's done for us. Mm-hmm. And we always want to keep that in proper sequence. Yeah. Notice that in how the epistles are structured, right? Mm-hmm. God's work, the indicative described in detail. Then you get a hinge verse that sets us up for our application and appropriation by God's grace of what he has mm-hmm. done for us as well. Right. So what we're needed, we need more than a standard. We also need empowerment to achieve that standard. And that's part of the new covenant ministry and promise. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, th- I mean, this is, these are good questions to press into. And I, but I think the verse you mentioned from Philippians is just so aptly puts these friends next to each other, you know, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, not work for work it out. Right. Uh, 
because you know something. You know that God is ultimately the one who's at work in you uh, to, you know, for his will and good pleasure. So that's, that's a, I think it's important to, to think through those things. And part of it for me, and this is just my personal thing, this isn't like the Bible or anything, but I've just, I've kind of landed in this spot where I think, you know, I see those parallel truths and, and, and I don't think more important than me understanding intricately all the details of exactly how all that works out. I just need to obey this verse and I need to, I need to trust that God is doing the work and I need to engage in doing the work, you know, and, yeah. So, and, and, and I guess bringing it back to this conversation of spiritual formation, I think there's a great hope in that. Uh, don't you think? Because I mean, maybe I'm just uniquely dysfunctional compared to the rest of the body of Christ, which is possible, you know? <laughs> but uh, I, I hit discouraging moments in my day to day journey and desires of pleasing the Lord at every level of the human experience, you know, of, and my thought life and my emotions and my actions and my worldview, my, the, the, the pillars of my perspective of, of worldview and all that. I want to honor God in these areas, but I, I hit walls and I, and I have slumps and I have failures. And, and sometimes I wonder if I am saved, (laughs) but uh, you know, to know that God is more interested in my growth and progress than even I am. And he's putting more into it even than I am all the time because of his grace and that, and that ultimately he's carrying me through, uh, even to glory. Uh, there's, there's a hope in that. There's an encouragement in there. Would you agree with, with all that? Exactly. And in one sense, thinking theologically, we all come from dysfunctional families. If you go back to Adam and Eve, <laughs> And it's not just kind of one dysfunctional family. Exactly, that's right. And it's not just the guilt, but it's the depravity that we inherit from that. Right. And while the guilt is dealt with fully and freely in the gospel of Christ, the depravity is being dealt with progressively. And I think that gives rise to the very real struggle that you're describing, even among regenerate men and women. Mm-hmm. And scripture is remarkably candid about human weakness, frailty, and the nature of that struggle. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we don't, have any warrant to expect heaven on earth prematurely. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, right now, the bondage to sin that previously we experienced as unbelievers has been broken, mm-hmm. but it's still going to be resistant. <laughs> so now there are opportunities to obey that eluded us previously, but that doesn't happen by autopilot, nor is it always smooth sailing. So I think what you described is very, very accurate and your listeners, I'm sure, can all relate to that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good to hear. I'm glad to not be alone. <laughs> no, at least there's two of us. <laughs> in this, yeah, in this special class of dysfunctional sinners, you know, which is not our truest identity, right? <laughs> no, exactly. That's right. And you, you want to be careful because you can get into the glass half empty. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where the discipline of self-examination helps us. Mm-hmm. We look candidly at ourselves in light of God's word using the best data we can from our own self-observation and the input from others that we invite. And we recognize that by God's grace, we're not yet what we once were, but also we're not yet what we need to be. Mm-hmm. And the not yet what we need to be gives us humility and keeps us wanting to grow. But the not yet, or excuse me, but the not what we once were also gives us encouragement that God is in fact changing us so one gives rise to the other in this progressive sanctification model. 
Yeah, that's right. And I often think of the example of Isaiah's encounter with the Lord in Isaiah 6, you know, and I've thought reflecting on that. It seems that the more God aware we become, the more clearly we see his glory and his perfection and his holiness, well, that produces a more accurate self-awareness. Yes. And what we see in contrast is is not pretty, <laughs> but how thankful we are that that isn't where that picture ends even in Isaiah 6, it, but it continues on into uh, this expression of grace and cleansing from sin. And it's out of that conviction of this, this, this reality that my union or acceptance or cleansing before God is more positionally, it's, it's always by grace. It's this act of God where he has pardoned sinners. Mm-hmm. It's out of that that we find our inspiration even to care about spiritual formation or growing into Christ-likeness. And I guess, you know, just that's something to, to probably press into a little bit is a, a gospel-fueled and motivated uh, pursuit of spiritual formation and, and personal change and transformation versus more of a, of, you know, some might say legalistic or performance or, or this, this spirit where uh, even as Christians, don't we st- struggle with this, where you know the gospel is that you're saved by grace through faith and you get that, that there's a position thing there. But as we are, as this is working out in our lives and we do experience these, these bumps and failures, sometimes we can slip back into um, not just being motivated by grace to continue pursuing change, but almost having this sense that we have to keep ourselves positionally in the embrace and acceptance of God by re-engaging in performance again. So uh, I don't know if I'm just, you know, kind of talking on and on there, but what are you, what are you hearing? What are you thinking in that? Um, What I'm hearing, I'm agreeing with. I I think you're saying that well. (laughs) And I think what you're trying to do is to articulate a classic reformation or Protestant understanding of how justification and sanctification relate to each other, to use Mm -hmm. theological terminology. Mm -hmm. Justification comes fully and freely based upon the merits of Christ, received only on the basis of faith. That's done with positionally, but that then triggers a sanctification process. Mm-hmm. So we're not pursuing sanctification with a view to trying to be justified. We are pursuing sanctification because we have been justified right. fully right. and freely in Christ. And with the regeneration that accompanies justification, we find that God has implanted new attitudes and new appetites and the ability to have new actions. Mm-hmm. That we're progressively growing into the positional righteousness that he gave us in Christ at our point of conversion. Which yeah. I think is the very same thing you're talking about as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great clarification. And and something else too that I, I, I you briefly touched on uh, in in one of your responses here, I think is is this idea you might might fairly characterize it as how we can get a bit of a morbid focus sometimes in our desire to change. And one of the things I appreciated about you coming from more of a reformed perspective in the classes, I, just you know, for clarity's sake, especially for those who are listening, I'm not reformed now, uh, but I my my entry into early Christian discipleship was very Calvinistic, which I know there's nuances to all these terms that we're using, but I would have characterized myself as as reformed back in the day, and. Um, and I wouldn't say that in the same way now, but that's one of the things I love about having these conversations is as a subtext, we're also <laughs> demonstrating unity in the most important aspects of the faith and the gospel person of Christ. And there's there's great value in talking uh, within uh, evangelical traditions that are a bit diverse uh, mm-hmm. for the sake of learning and encouraging and one another on as well. So having said all that, one of the things that I uh, 
saw in my myself and and i wouldn't i'm not i would never blame reformed theology on this i'm just saying it's something that i i think for me anyway is a general observation and you mentioned it in the classes there's sometimes a focus that almost feels like a morbid focus on how sinful and how depraved and how wretched i am <laughs> you know and to the point where i uh i remember realizing at a point uh, where I, it's as if the value of a sermon to me uh, was determined by how much of a worm I felt like after I left church on a particular morning or, or whatever context I was hearing preaching. And so, um, but I appreciated in the class you uh, candidly saying, hey, look, I'm reformed, uh, but this is an issue <laughs> and we need to talk about it. So maybe you wouldn't mind uh, to speaking into that a little bit. Well, sure. And I think that came up in classes we were talking about a Christian self-image. How do you think about how a Christian should think about him or herself mm -hmm. and the fact that there's different schools of thought in evangelicalism on that? Yeah. But both are trying to respond to a legitimate biblical theme, and they're trying to balance the biblical teaching about the dignity of humanity created in God's image mm -hmm. and the depravity of humanity right. who's united in Adam's fall. Mm -hmm. And you have to have both on your radar screen to get the biblical balance. And like everything else, whenever there's polemics, the first thing that gets lost is nuance. What is scripture <laughs> meant to be both and ends up becoming an either or. Right. And we're so fearful of what we fear is the error on the other side that sometimes we back into the very opposite error. Mm -hmm. So just like in a simple lifestyle movement, sometimes you try to establish your spirituality by trying to outsimplify the person sitting next to you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in some reform circles, you try to out self-flagellate yourself by heaping up negative adjectives in front of worm or whatever mm -hmm. and the more you exalt your fallenness uh, the more spiritual you would come across definitely scripture teaches the reality of total depravity right right but scripture also teaches the fact that god created us in his image which has its own ethical implications as far as self-identity and is renewing us in that image as you said earlier as well and that to me is a balancing or tempering dynamic that leads mm -hmm. to a romans 12 Think of yourself with sound judgment, not to one extreme or the other, but according to the grace that God has given. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And and to be fair, even as we kind of verbally process this out, uh, it is not unique to Reformed theology or Reformed circles to find a way to confuse um, self-deprecation and the constant um, belittling and, and begrudging of, of self in the name of humility. Mm -hmm. And that's not necessarily the same thing. No, exactly. Humility, I think, is framed in an accurate self-assessment in light of God's definition. Mm. God is the person who tells me who I am, mm. and who I am, according to his definition found in his word, has these two streams that flow together. I'm adopted, I'm loved, I'm gifted, I'm capable of being an instrument of blessing to other people's lives, but I'm fallen, I'm finite, I'm dependent. Both of those need to flow into the same river to get a biblically balanced self-concept, allowing God to be the one who defines me and not myself or other people. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, so so we've talked 
a bit about uh, definitions and some of the biblical and theological roots and concepts behind this category of spiritual formation. So maybe we could talk now about models of spiritual formation, I guess a bit bridging into the more the human side of things where we're, we, we agree with God. We want, we want to be changed and transformed into the image of Christ. So what does that look like in my life? And some of this could just be my Americanness coming out, but what does this look like practically, you know? And so what, I guess as we do that, let's maybe start with a little bit of an overview, and maybe you could describe for us some of the most common models of spiritual formation historically, and then those that you see emphasized today. Okay. Well, limiting myself to the world of evangelical Protestantism, because if you get into Catholicism or Greek Orthodoxy, you're going to be getting um, many more iterations of this. Mm -hmm. I think historically, um, the major models work under the labels of Reformed, Wesleyan, Keswick, mm-hmm. uh, Charismatic, and mm-hmm. each of those obviously continues to influence the evangelical church today. Mm-hmm. There's a Lutheran model with law and gospel and how they would understand that as well. That can be distinguished distinguished from some of the other models. And I think in recent times, you're also seeing more of this contemplative mystical model influencing some sectors of the evangelical church. And what might also be called uh, a social social justice or activistic model as well. Mm-hmm. And what all of these models are trying to get at is there's a common core, but different understandings by way of emphasis about what does spiritual maturity look like and how is it best nurtured. And those can all be subdivided in different ways, but that seems to be the two categories that distinguish one model from another. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as you as you consider those models you just mentioned, would it be possible to, to have you just give a brief explanation of each of those? Just what are the key components of okay. it? Well, the reform model, by definition, comes out of Reformation theology. So mm-hmm. there you have uh, Calvinism practically applied to all of life to develop a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And it has a high view of abiding sin, a high view of the significance of the law and the multiple uses of how God intends the law to be functioned as well. Mm-hmm. They would tend to see Romans 7, last half, as a Christian at his or her best. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and as a result of that, gave rise to Puritan movement, um, Gospel Coalition is moderately reformed as well, Presbyterian denominations and others who were of that ilk. Mm-hmm. Often if you have Westminster, or John Knox, or those kinds of names, you, you know you're dealing in reform circles as well. Right. The Keswick and the Wesleyan and the charismatic models were all reactions historically to some of those reformed distinctives. Mm-hmm. The Keswick model felt that reformed theology downplayed the secret of the victorious or exchanged life, and that is often at a popular level articulated as let go and let God. In other words, stop trying. <laughs> and let Jesus live his life through you, where J.I. Packer, representing the reform model, would say not let go and let God. He would say, trust God and get going. Mm -hmm. You can see a slight difference of fork in the road. Go ahead. And there's a bit of an irony to that from from where I sit, because I think I've I've heard the reformed crowd be uh, more accused of this kind of, well, we believe it's all about God's sovereignty, of course. And so there's really not much that you do, you know, it's just let go and let God would seem to make a little more sense perhaps to some coming from a reform framework. uh, Whereas to hear Packer and others say, no, 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 there's a responsibility. (laughs) It's just, it's interesting. Exactly. 
And then the Wesleyan model, if reformed, tends to be one nature that is being progressively transformed in the Christian life. Mm. Music tends to be a new nature is implanted in me, and you've got an old nature and a new nature, neither of which changes, but there is a an eye that chooses between the two. Mm-hmm. So that's unchanging two natures. The Wesleyan model is more um, an eradication, uh, a new covenant-like heart transplant. Mm-hmm. My heart that in Adam was governed by sin is now governed by perfect love for God and others. So that led to the tarrying meetings as well. So you see the Reformed model with its distinctives, the uh, Keswick and the Wesleyan models responding to different dimensions of the Reformed model. Mm-hmm. And then the Charismatic model, of course, uh, reacts against the classic Reformed cessationism as far as the continued operation of the sign gifts as well. Mm-hmm. Now, each of those, if you ask, what does godliness look like? And the answer is Jesus. You're going to get a common answer from all four. <laughs> yeah. But when people try to understand a little bit more uh, how do I get there? Mm-hmm. And is there a second work of grace that is needed post-conversion to get there? Mm-hmm. The Reformed will say, no, it's like getting married. You may have periodic rededications to your marriage, but you're not getting married again. Mm-hmm. The other three will posit the necessity of a second work of grace, whether overt or covert, that is needed to experience spiritual fullness. Mm-hmm. So someone would have to determine, as they read the New Testament, is a second work of grace normative for Christian spiritual growth? Mm-hmm. Or was it described historically as part of God giving birth to the church that was extending through all the people groups, mm-hmm. an extension of the blessing of Pentecost, for example? Mm-hmm. And it's not to be expected today. So I don't need to go to a tearing meeting to experience the victorious life or the exchange life or the baptism of the Holy Spirit or something like that as well. That would be another more subtle but still significant distinction between Reformed and the other camps. You're invited to join us for the 2019 CGN International Conference. This is a focused time of connection, collaboration, and encouragement for Christ-centered people and churches from all over the world. The conference is open to anyone in pastoral leadership, staff or volunteer church ministry workers and leadership, and those training for ministry along with their spouses. Speakers this year include Sam Alberry, Andrew Bond, Gary Brashears, Brian Broderson, Ray Ortland, Miles McPherson, Derek Nider, Mark Sayers, Bruce Clark, Tim Chaddock, and many more. This year, we're going to have several specific training tracks, including the gospel-oriented discipleship track. There's a lot of talk today about gospel-centered or gospel-oriented discipleship. While the terms may seem trendy, it is vitally important for God's people to understand how the gospel relates to the ongoing process of spiritual growth and character transformation. Day one of this track will feature instruction and discussion on the nature of gospel-oriented discipleship practice. On day two, the discussion will focus on how our understanding of the gospel should shape the way Christians process and address predominant cultural definitions of sexual ethics, caring for same-sex attracted Christians, and much more. Again, the CGN International Conference is open to anyone with a heart for gospel ministry, including senior pastors, teaching lead, admin, associate and assistant pastors, youth pastors and youth leaders, worship leaders, children's ministry leaders, paid and volunteer church staffers, community group leaders, and really anyone with a heart for gospel ministry. The conference is taking place June 24th through the 27th at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa in Costa Mesa, California. For more information and to get registered, visit cgn.calvarychapel.com. That's cgn.calvarychapel.com.
Okay, and so with this this concept of the, of second experiences of grace, um, I I heard in in what you were saying there, one possible example of that could be something that takes place in a prayer meeting. Uh, another, you know, but we're we're using terms like baptism of the spirit, maybe spirit filling, and all that. So, what are some examples of what you mean when you're saying some would expect a second experience of grace that's normative for progression in spiritual formation? If I'm a pastor who is an advocate of one of the three responding to reform alternatives, mm-hmm. and someone comes to me for pastoral counseling who is struggling with sin, mm-hmm. I would be likely to ask the question have you experienced X, whatever I understand that second work of grace to be. Yeah. And if the answer is- Have you been baptized with the Spirit? Have you been filled with the Spirit? Or Have you decided to become a disciple and not just a believer? Have you accepted Jesus as Lord, not just as Savior? That's the more mild form of the second work of grace as well. Mm -hmm. Or have you received the new heart that God promises in the new covenant in more of a Wesleyan framework as well? Mm -hmm. And if the answer from the counselee is no, the pastor is- is going to say, no wonder you're struggling. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let me somehow lead you into this experience that is essential for you to experience spiritual fullness mm-hmm. and spiritual power. Mm-hmm. The reformed person would likely say instead, welcome to the human race. Progressive sanctification is going to often be three steps forward, two steps back. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned earlier, persevere. God will get you across the finish line. Don't expect it to be easy. It might be easier, but it's never going to be easy this side of heaven as well. And the same God who justified you will indeed sanctify you and will glorify you. So persevere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and these are, these are somewhat challenging conversations because I think, and this is just my perception. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but a lot of my colleagues and even myself, I would I listen to the the models of spiritual formation and I think about them and I find that I'm a bit of a hybrid of some of these, you know, we don't always fit nice and neatly into some of the categories, you know, which is not to say that the categories are bad. They're very helpful. And I think there's a, there's a tradition here that's true that we're talking about, you know, Uh, but, you know, so, so for myself, even, even within Calvary Chapel, which is the, the uh, the dysfunctional evangelical family I'm a part of, (laughs) we, as all of them are dysfunctional, right? That's right. There you go. So, so we, um, there's some, there, I think, I think, and I, and I'll, I'll probably get myself in trouble here. So this will be fun. But my perception of our, our movement, the one that I'm a part of is that we, uh, have a lot more historically in common with the Keswick and charismatic mm-hmm. aspects or perspectives on some of the things that we're talking about. And so there would have been more, uniformity through the influence of pastor chuck smith uh, who's the human founder Mm -hmm. um to you to connect the idea with baptism of the spirit not so much with the indwelling and sealing of the spirit exclusively but also the uh, a, a a version of what we're talking about of a second experience of grace where we you know you come to christ yes you're indwelt yes you are sealed but there's there's another thing that can and must occur. Sometimes it happens at the point of regeneration. Sometimes it happens down the road from the point of regeneration. But there is this new experience that happens where the Spirit is not just in you, but He begins to overflow your life, and you do find new victory, perhaps new um, 
aspects of the gifts and the more what are commonly thought of as the charismatic gifts uh, working and flowing in your life. So I, I think that that's a fair description of the roots of Calvary Chapel on this issue. But then I say all that to say, I think there's also even today as Calvary has moved from those early days to uh, being a multi-generational um, movement of leaders and pastors that there's also a bit of a spectrum now. And so for, for myself, I think the, the way that I would see uh, that relationship of the spirit and, and the spirit's empowerment to this is I would say, what, when you believe in the gospel, you are born again. You are indwelt by the Spirit. You are sealed by the Spirit. And I personally wouldn't say, but then you need to get baptized with the Spirit. I would personally say, and from that point on, that point of regeneration, you have the the uh, privilege, the opportunity, and the responsibility to seek the filling of the Spirit for empowerment to be an effective witness throughout your life. And so there's a there's a there's an aspect there that I think. Um, I don't see it as a one-time event where you enter into a new plane. I see it as equal opportunity to all of us. And, and the, the indication to me in Scripture and, you know, in the book of Acts and other places is that this, the, the filling of the Spirit, as I would put it, is not something that you receive and then you have it for the rest of your life. And hey, I, I, I wake up glowing with the Shekinah glory of God every day. And I used to really struggle, but you know, now I got this thing. There, there is more of that reformed dynamic where there's an ebb and flow to the, uh, to the experience or the effectiveness of seeking to live for Christ. But there's this always available empowerment of the spirit to be sought. So anyway, I say that not so much because I'm trying to convince you, but just to talk through a little bit of our own, our, of our, my perception of my movement. And, but then to even say, I'm, I'm a little bit of a hybrid. I feel like between the reformed and the Calvary chapel kind of view of this kind of thing. And just to say, uh, there is a diversity and it's tough to put ourselves in categories sometimes. Uh, yeah. But what, what are you thinking? What, what, how are you hearing all that? No, I, I think that's well said. And I think the hybrid dynamic that you describe is a microcosm of what happens between these movements at a macrocosmic level. They tend to cross-pollinate mm-hmm. and influence each other. For example, now you have word and spirit churches mm-hmm. that take some reform convictions with some continuationist convictions and put those together into a right. new or other along the lines I think that you're describing with CGM. Yeah, what do you do with Sam Storms, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's like the Sovereign Grace Movement and that sort of thing as well. And then on the other side, there's probably two more things I want to briefly say. One yeah. is because these movements morph not everyone who might march under its label knowingly or unknowingly would necessarily uh, affirm everything that maybe at one point in history, the founders of that movement affirmed initially. Mm-hmm. There is that learning from each other and that mid-course correction as we're all working out of the same book. Right. Mm-hmm. And second, many people who experience these uh, spiritual bursts of energy or enthusiasm or zeal or victory or whatever you're talking about as far as mm-hmm. not just one essential experience one has to go through, but the ups and downs, ebbs and flows of the typical spiritual life mm-hmm. will tend to then describe it to other people in a way that's influenced by their current theology. Mm-hmm. Although that experience may in fact have happened despite the theology, not because of the theology. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between correlation and causation. Yeah. yeah. But since, and I think it's because God honors our hearts 
more than he honors the precision of our theology sometimes. Now, I don't want to be a seminary president quoted to say you can be sloppy in your theology or should be. <laughs> we won't do that to you. But I think our theology is imperfectly sanctified like the rest of our lives as well. Yeah. And sometimes God will take uh, a partial truth and bless the appropriation of that for the spiritual experience you describe. But when I share it with someone else, why and how I experienced it, I'm not going to recognize it was despite, I'm going to think it's because of, and I'm going to replicate it. Does that make sense as, as far as it how that process sense. Okay. And that's why we're going to listen to each other and say, wait a second, if that person's having the same experience with different theological convictions, then maybe it's not my distinctive theological conviction that's behind the experience. Oh, yes. Maybe yes. there's something more fundamental we have to, to learn from. Right. Yeah. And I, I think there's so many examples of this. We love to look at the good things God is doing uh, by his grace and find a way to take credit for it, even <laughs> subliminally, you know. That's right. That's yeah. a very real problem. Okay. Uh, so, okay, that's that's great. And so I, you've already, um, I think this has already come out a bit, but I want to ask you about your preferred spiritual model. We've talked about some basic definitions of some of these common models of spiritual formation, but what is your preferred model and why is that? Well, like you, I work off of more of a Reformed foundation because I don't see in Scripture an essential post-conversion work that everyone must experience mm-hmm. to engage spiritual fullness. Mm-hmm. So that's the one premise that has me take a right at the fork of the road rather than a left at that okay. point. Mm-hmm. As you have reflected earlier, uh, I think there are some things that the reform movement, like any movement, can sometimes overemphasize mm-hmm. that can lead to uh, a well-intentioned error. So I would be a critical reformed practitioner. Uh, I, I think sometimes we don't let the dignity teaching of scripture related to humanity temper our understanding of total depravity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we might even overstate the notion of the sovereignty of God as an organizing principle, thinking that the more sovereign God is, the more he is glorified, but not wanting to go into an Islamic fatalism view of God's sovereignty as well. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, this whole meticulous providence kind of model as well, as we try to understand different levels of causation and those sorts of things. Right. So, But off of a basic template, I tend to work off of a a reformed template and then build from there. That's great. And, and so what do you, what is it that you particularly find appealing about the reformed approach to this? And I, and I, I do want to ask you, I think as a connected question to this, what you do make of the language of spirit filling and, uh, you know, Paul's uh, exhortation to uh, be filled with the spirit. And uh, many would say that that's that the, the the Greek there indicates a continually be being filled with the spirit kind of dynamic. So, uh, so I guess the two parts is what is it that you like about the reformed view of, of spiritual formation? And then how do, does that kind of terminology about spirit filling fit into your interpretation of things? What I like about reformed theology is it takes theology very, very seriously, Mm -hmm. seeks to apply it to all of life very, very carefully uh, the Puritans in particular are exemplars of that for all their weaknesses. They were very, very precise and very, very comprehensive in their understanding of human responsibility as, as living out covenant faithfulness to God. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And it also gives me a realistic understanding of the spiritual life. I don't have to struggle with perfectionistic terminology mm-hmm. or a Jesus taking the wheel, living his life through me, but still seeing the imperfections that accompany that. The kinds of things that sometimes no offense, Carrie Underwood, I'm sure. That's right, exactly. But the kind of, <laughs> sometimes 
don't seem to fit my understanding of my own autobiography spiritually or others throughout church history as I look at it. I find the explanatory power of Reformed theology to be the better fit of the typical experience of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. On the spirit-filling side, I would agree with you, but I'm, I'm also impressed by how Scripture refers to the very same concept with different vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We sometimes tend to pull out of a context and then make a defining principle, all important. I think spirit-filling is just allowing the Holy Spirit to shape your life and out of which produces the fruit of the Spirit. So it's nothing necessarily mystical. It can be described in other ways as well, but it's another way of Paul acknowledging our dependence upon the Spirit for this transformation and our need to cooperate with the Spirit in that transformation as well. And he just uses other imagery and other epistles to deal with the very same concept. Is that kind of what you're asking me, Kellen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, exactly. I mean, just clarifying your perspective on what spirit filling is and how it kind of connects to this whole process of spiritual formation. That's exactly what you're, you're answering. And that's what and maybe I'm a different way methodologically, methodologically of thinking about that, that to me is a, uh, a check on not overemphasizing what scripture doesn't emphasize to the same extent I might be prone to would be before all of the biblical uh, canon was put together what would the church in Colossae understand about how to live the spiritual life if they didn't have the rest of the New Testament immediately accessible to them? Mm-hmm. And the fact that these letters were pastorally motivated to deal with particular issues, but by applying transcendent principles to the particular issues, like a typical pastor does today as well. So whenever I find a concept that appears rarely in Scripture, I don't want to make that the end-all or be-all concept if I don't see that same concept appearing elsewhere in Scripture. Mm-hmm. At least for a season, there were people who didn't have access to that concept who were still doing just fine in their spiritual lives. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, yeah, that's a, that's a very intriguing area of thought to engage in, you know, as, as the, as the canon was unfolding and all of those kinds of things. And yet, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would personally say that, the spirit filling uh, as a as a concept or a principle inscription is a rare thing. <laughs> but no, no, no we're not. But yeah. the vocabulary is a little bit different. I mean, that, that's the whole thing. And that, that's why I'm saying if you say what is the root concept that can be described in different ways in different contexts, then I think you are grounded in a more robust, multifaceted concept that you're describing. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I guess what I'm thinking about is there's a school of thought that just takes the three verbs out of Romans six, no reckon yield. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's the for spirituality. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's to me an abuse of uh, proportion. At that right, right, right. Point. Yeah, and, and to, there's two things I, I, I want to say here. One is this is partly what I love about Western Seminary and my experience there is I mean I know that Western is not a, a an officially reformed school that you you come from a reformed perspective, but there's diversity in the staff and and there's diversity in the kingdom and this is this is why we do all this. But another thing I think that and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing and what you're expressing is uh, is the value of a, the integrative theological method. You don't want to just uh, take this question of spiritual formation or some of the important things connected to it and find a couple verses and say, well, that's it. And I'm going to build this whole big system on it. But we want to take that question. And and as Gary often, Gary Bashir is another prophet at Western, often says, you want to ask the question, what makes the most sense of the most biblical data with the fewest amount of difficulties? And 
Yeah, we're not building straw men and pulling a, a piece or two here and saying, well, the whole Bible must fit into this little box that seems to be implied by a couple statements over here, right? That's right. That inadvertently becomes more cult-like in methodology yeah. than genuinely Christian as well. Yeah. So that's well said. Yeah. And that's, you know, on that, on that point you just mentioned there, I think that's another... Uh, another reason that it's valuable to have these conversations amongst uh, brothers and co-laborers who are very close in in perspective or even sometimes somewhat different in perspective. But I think what you're saying, we all have the same goal. We all have the same goal of being Christ-like. We all have the same Bible that we're working from. And really the question at the end of the day with all of this needs to be what we just said with the integrative theological method. What does the Bible have to say? The most important thing isn't, well, am I still lining up with my tradition? (laughs) The most important. You only want to do that insofar as your tradition's lining up with the scriptures, right? Yeah. If it does line up with scriptures, it will hold up when you compare notes with a brother or sister in Christ. Right. also want the humility to recognize they may see something in scripture more clearly than I do Yes, because of their background, uh, their age, or their theological tribe that they belong to as well. So to not uh, put my theological convictions in concrete prematurely, yeah. to maintain, especially on the areas where scripture is not as clear, an openness to learn from one another. I think you're right on target with that. Yeah. Yeah, a great way to never learn. I was just saying this to in a podcast with Brian Broderson the other day, that a, a great way to to stop learning is to only talk with people who think exactly like you. Yes. That's the theological echo chamber that happens in politics so often with the same unfortunate consequences. Right. Okay, so moving moving on, uh, getting a little practical. We got just two questions here and then we're going to we're going to start wrapping up. But uh, what are some practical and here I'm thinking about you know, I don't want to use phrases like the average Christian because, you know, <laughs> speaking of two levels of Christianity, we don't want to imply anything like that. But just for for all of us believers who are going through this process and we're desiring to uh, cultivate Christ-likeness in our lives by the grace and spirit of God, what are some practical keys to that for us? What are some practical keys for cultivating healthy spiritual formation? Well, if I work from the premise that spiritual maturity is often more received than achieved, back to our earlier point about dependence upon God's transforming grace mm-hmm. that's experienced progressively as well, right? then I want to always have on my radar screen the awareness that all of this is generated by God's initiative and enabled by his power. Mm-hmm. So then my responsibility is how do I optimally cooperate with that transformational process? Great. And yeah. obviously, since we're both Bible people, we're going to find the answer to that in the imperatives in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what does God call me to do in light of what he's already done for me? Mm-hmm. And that becomes my path forward to cooperate with him. And I think there you're going to find what are the activities. Some would call them spiritual disciplines. Some would call them holy habits. Mm-hmm. But the kinds of activities that position me to receive and be transformed by that grace from the inside out. And now you're talking about the biblical basics like Bible reading and community and worship and prayer and service and those sorts of things as well. So we don't want to practice spiritual disciplines like Catholic monks. Mm -hmm. We want to practice them as men and women who've already been saved by the gospel but are seeking to receive imparted righteousness to live out the imputed righteousness that we've already received in Christ Mm -hmm. and to recognize that it's not a self-help project, but a cooperation of our wills in alliance with what God is already doing for us as well. Mm -hmm. So individually, that's why the more effort I put into the spiritual life development by practicing these habits that cultivate my transformation while recognizing I'm not doing this only by myself, 
the more likely I am to grow, mm-hmm. to experience the spiritual fullness and power that you alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the grace, let me ask, is it fair to put it this way, that the grace of God that is ours through faith in the gospel, that's always the motivation for why we care about changing, why we care about growth in Christ-likeness, and all the success we have within the, the process of transformation needs to be attributed to the grace and work of God's Spirit uh, in our lives. And yet, all of that serves as great motivation to really put effort into this by using God's appointed means of continuing to cultivate spiritual health in our lives. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. And recognizing that my effort is necessary, but not sufficient. Yeah. So that yeah. keeps me involved, but not self-dependent or <laughs> self-sufficient as well. Yeah. And then also just to keep the ultimate destination on the radar screen mm-hmm. is the moral virtues of Christ-likeness, also described as living out faithfully the two-sided great commandment. Love mm-hmm. God with my whole being in grateful devotion and love my neighbor as myself. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, I, it's such a great, such a great uh, thing to bring up again because, you know, this issue of the target uh, because, and it's another motivator as, as we've talked about a lot here in this conversation of for us to keep our Bibles close and to... Exactly. And That's to right. read them carefully, because when you get into the goal of the sanctification process, the spiritual formation process, um, I think it's easy for us to have blind spots and to to get to really be operating with the picture in mind that may or may not be the target that Scripture is aiming us toward. You know, and and as we this certainly touches on our evangelical traditions and, and can be influenced by all sorts of things. Uh, but yeah, it's, if, if we're operating with the wrong target, that can only produce frustration and a sense of setback and ultimately despair. So keeping the biblical target as Christ-likeness as defined and expressed by the written word of God exactly. as the goal. Yeah. That's right. No, that's well said. Okay, great. Cool. I'm glad that I feel better that you agree. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm getting something right here. All right. right. All right. So there's practical uh, keys to cultivating spiritual health. And and lastly, if we could just dig in a little bit on on this issue, more thinking of pastors and ministry leaders or who are leading congregations or responsible for the spiritual care of, of others uh, in their lives. And so how can pastors and ministry leaders facilitate healthy spiritual formation at a corporate level? So, so part of what we're saying is I want to grow, right. but part of what we're also want to talk about now is many of us, in some ways, all of us have the responsibility to help others grow, but even that can be an informal relationship network. So I'm thinking here more about uh, like we, we might have in the West where there's pastors, leaders who are uh, leading in formal organizations and ministry contexts. And they're thinking this isn't just a one-to-one thing all the time, but there's some corporate dynamics that can be shaped in the spiritual life of the church that can contribute to healthy spiritual formation for church members. So speak into that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. Well, I'm spending a lot of time in the pastoral epistles lately mm-hmm. to refresh my thinking and refine my thinking on that very issue, especially as it affects seminary curricula to try to help prepare pastors mm-hmm. to do that very thing that you're describing. Yeah. And I'm struck by Paul's summary of take heed to yourself and to your doctrine in First mm-hmm. Timothy. Mm, which means as you're watching over the souls of others, also watch over your own soul Mm -hmm. because your own spirituality is going to be disproportionately influential for your faithfulness and your fruitfulness in the task that's being entrusted to you. 
and the doctrine or the teaching being the message that's been entrusted to us that needs to be preserved carefully and communicated faithfully because it is the message of the uniquely transforming power of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And then you see what else you have in that word-based ministry. You have the various one another's of the New Testament. So I want to make sure that the people of God are functioning as vehicles of transforming grace in each other's lives as they're practicing that reciprocity mm-hmm. of the behaviors that keep us united in Christ visibly and growing in Christ by way of maturing as well, which I think is an organizing principle mm-hmm. for one another's in the New Testament. And then to follow the other marks of the church to make sure we're um, – practicing discipline, celebrating the ordinances and those sorts of things that you find uh, originated in scripture and illustrated throughout church history, that are their spiritual vitamins or holy habits of the people of God corporately as they're seeking to grow individually together so that corporately they can model the virtue of the transforming life and be effective in mission as they take that message to unbelievers. Thank you very much, Randy. Hey, it's been uh, it's been insightful, it's been helpful, and it's been challenging. <laughs> All good things, right? <laughs> That's part of life and learning. Yeah, so th- thanks for taking the time for this. Before we go here, I do want to just ask you how, uh, a couple of questions on resources and connections. So how can people connect with the ministries, uh, with Western Seminary, the, the ministries you're involved with that would be relevant? And and maybe you could provide a couple recommended resources for people who uh, want to dig in more to the biblical and practical uh, framework for spiritual formation. Okay. Well, the best way to find out about Western is at our website, westernseminaryoneword.edu, and there's a lot of information there. I'll make available to you also a uh, document that our faculty has put together called Toward a Classic Strategy for Evangelical Renewal. It talks about what gospel-centered transformation looks like uh, in a theological vision for ministry. Mm-hmm. And then I think I would commend to people authors like Richard Lovelace, L-O-V-E-L-A-C-E, and J.I. Packer, and John Stodd, and other stalwarts of the faith as well. But I find them to be disproportionately helpful in my own spiritual growth and the life of others, others as well. And they've written multiple books on those things. That's great. Well, we include a, a set of show notes that's attached to all the, the links for our podcast episodes. And so we'll make sure those show notes include uh, definitions of the things that we've been discussing today and, and the links to that document and, and uh, some of these other authors and resources as well. I'm sure that will be helpful to our listeners. So thanks again, Randy. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you, Kellen. I enjoyed it. All right. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to the CGN Mission and Methods podcast. Please subscribe and review the podcast on iTunes. And for more information about the ministry and resources of Calvary Global Network, visit cgn.calvarychapel.com. Mm-hmm.